TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Could we make something that wasn't just the science or the art, but it was like this third thing where the text and the paintings really, they supported each other. Like you need one to have the other. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, artist Leah Halloran and physicist Kip Thorne talk about the importance of trying to visualize our universe. The visualization is the thing that enables me to make leaps of insight and decide what mathematical calculations to do. Astrophysics has proved we had the Big Bang, and there are black holes, and undulating space-time, and all manner of nearly unimaginable phenomena. But what do these things look like? We are such a visual species that for most of us without degrees in advanced math, these things don't make a lot of sense unless we can somehow see them. And Kip Thorne and Leah Halloran. Kip Thorne is a Nobel Prize-winning theoretical physicist, as well as a poet. Leah Halloran is a multi-award-winning artist and photographer who is deeply interested in the natural world and science. Together, they have created a book of poetry and paintings called The Warped Side of the Universe, an odyssey through black holes, wormholes, time travel, and gravitational waves. They join me today to talk about their lives and their very cosmic collaboration. Kip Thorne and Leah Halloran, welcome to Design Matters. Great pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. Kip, um, is it true that the prize for a scientific bet you won with Stephen Hawking was a subscription to Penthouse Magazine? Yes, that's true. (laughs) 
That was a long time ago. That was the era of the 1970s. It was a different era <laughs> from today. What was the bet? The bet was whether a particular object that had been seen with optical telescopes and radio telescopes called Cygnus X1, also with X-ray telescopes, whether it had a black hole at its center. And uh, I bet that it did. Stephen bet that it did not. He uh, regarded that as a insurance policy uh, because he had so much riding on it turning out to be a black hole that he figured that he would at least get, for him, it was a subscription uh, to a different uh, magazine, Private Eye, uh, British <laughs> magazine. Uh, for me, it was Penthouse. And, well, in the end, I won, but it took about 20 years until uh, he signed off. Ah, okay. Well, good to know. Um, Kip, you were born in Logan, Utah, a town of 16,000 people nestled in a valley in the Rocky Mountains. Your dad was a professor and your mom had a PhD in economics. She was a deeply committed community activist and a feminist and the author of the book, Leave the Dishes in the Sink, Adventures of an Activist in Conservative Utah. Was your mom an active member of the community all through your childhood, or did it begin later in life? Oh, she was very active in the community throughout my childhood and throughout her life. When she died, there were gigantic headlines in the local newspaper, Old Radical Dies. By the standards of conservative Logan, Utah, she was a radical. I think by the standards of Southern California, she would have been very mainstream. What would you say is the most important thing she taught you? I think she taught me to investigate things that I was interested in. She took me when I was age eight to a, a talk given by a, a professor at the local university to talk about the solar system. And I fell in love with the idea of the solar system with its then nine planets going around the sun uh, with these enormous distances between the planets by comparison with their sizes. And uh, she helped me get started on doing various astronomy projects thereafter and got me to the point quite quickly that I was on my own and I was inventing projects of my own to do. And she was just wonderful with her children and inspiring this way. I understand before you fell in love with astronomy, you had a deep desire to become a snowplow driver. Oh, yes, absolutely. The uh, snow in this mountain valley that I grew up in, Cache Valley, in 1948 particularly, it was very deep. And the snow plows in front of our house would push the snow up to a height that could be two or even three times higher than my father was tall and that was clearly the most powerful job in the whole <laughs> world. And so, yes, that's what I wanted to be before I uh, fell in love with astronomy. Once you fell in love with astronomy, I understand that you began to devour everything that you could find about astronomy in the local library and in bookstores. You've said that when you found a paperback copy of 123 Infinity by the physicist George Gamow, you were dazzled. And your description of the book was so compelling, Kip, that I just bought it as well. And it's really a wonderful book. I mean, it's so... Um, I don't want to say it's easy to read because it's not easy to read, but for somebody like me that's more of a, a fan of physics and astronomy as opposed to anywhere as close to um, 
even remotely able to do any anything in physics or astronomy, I found it to be really, really enjoyable. What did you find particularly remarkable about it? The thing that struck me the most and that uh, just totally captivated me was Gamow's description of the laws of physics as controlling the universe, controlling how the universe was born, perhaps, uh, surely controlling how it has evolved, controlling the kinds of things that uh, have uh, come to exist in the universe. And that was the point at which I decided I wanted to be a theoretical physicist who worked on the laws of physics, uh, rather than an astronomer, uh, but uh, one who then focused on how the laws of physics controlled the astronomical universe. And that's what happened. As a teenager in the 1950s, you played saxophone and clarinet in a dance band. You participated in exhibition dancing, edited the high school yearbook. You were on the high school debate squad. And it- oh, you know so much about me. It's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you had quite a lot of range um, and in high school. Did you, at that point, did you know what you wanted to do professionally? Well, I knew I wanted to become a physicist and work in astrophysics. I, I knew that very clearly from age 13 on. Even then? But, oh, okay. But I knew how to enjoy life as well. And uh, that was another aspect of me from the beginning is I wanted to enjoy life uh, and I wanted to understand the universe. I wanted to contribute what I could to human understanding of the universe and have fun doing it. I understand that one of the reasons you chose Caltech for college was that you read that if on an exam you got the wrong answer, but your arguments were good, you could get a decent mark. That's right. What, what did that tell you about Caltech? What, what did that give you the sense that the school was like? Well, it gave me a sense that uh, it was a place they did not have wrote rules about uh, how things were done. It's a place that was very reasonable uh, and flexible that focused on what was important. In this case, when you're a student trying to learn science and how to do science, more important than learning facts was learning how to figure facts out, how to figure things out. And th that was the epitome of this statement that I read in Time magazine and 1954, I think it was. It was a euphoric article about Caltech, a cover story about Caltech in Time magazine. And I decided at that point, I'm going to cal go to Caltech. I'm going to be a student at Caltech, and I want to uh, have a career at Caltech. And, well, here I am. It was at Caltech that you first developed your interest in black holes. What first intrigued you about this phenomena? Why black holes? Well, I was intrigued by black holes, but I didn't understand them at all while I was at Caltech. To really understand them, I had to learn in depth uh, Einstein's general relativity and the laws of warped space-time. At Caltech, I just was intrigued by the idea that there would be this object into which things could fall and out of which nothing could come. And I struggled to understand how that could be and how that fit in with the rest of physics. But I didn't really succeed in understanding that until I went to Princeton as a graduate student. And in my early months at Princeton, started to study general relativity under John Wheeler and Bob Dickey, who were two professors there, one of them a th great theorist, the other a great experimenter, both working 
in Einstein's theory of gravity. Is it Princeton that you began to develop a vision for the future of gravitational wave astronomy? Can you share what a gravitational wave actually is for our listeners? So a gravitational wave is a... I'm going to describe it in several different ways in in order to capture it. First, I can describe it as a ripple in the fabric of space and time that travels at the same speed as light. A ripple sort of like a ripple on the surface of the ocean. That doesn't really tell you what you would feel if a gravitational wave went through you. It doesn't really explain in, in a very clear way what's going on. So what the gravitational wave actually does is it stretches space in one direction perpendicular to the direction it's uh, traveling. So if it's traveling from me to you, then in the perpendicular direction between us, it stretches space in one direction and squeezes space in the perpendicular direction. And then a moment later, it stretches space in the perpendicular direction and squeezes space horizontally. And it's an oscillating stretching and squeezing of space as time goes on. That's not the full story of the gravitational wave. It is also twisting space clockwise and twisting space counterclockwise. So it's a rather rich form of space warping as time passes. In 1972, Rainier Weiss, the physics professor at MIT, proposed an L-shaped laser interferometer, gravitational wave detector, with free-swinging mirrors whose oscillating separations would be measured via laser interferometry. At the time, you didn't think it was very promising. Why not? Because I had a pretty good idea how strong the strongest gravitational waves are that pass through the Earth. And they're very, very weak by the time they reach the Earth. What Ray Weiss said is you're going to bounce the light off of mirrors. And so you're, and you have interferometry, which enables you to measure to high precision uh, the motion of the two mirrors that it's bouncing back and forth between. And uh, the gravitational waves are enormously larger than the atoms in the mirror. So it just didn't seem to me at all plausible that you could pull this off. I could see that it was conceivable in principle, but in practice, to do this down to 10 million or 100 million times smaller than an atom, where the mirrors are made out of those atoms, the mirrors are bumpy, and the light is bouncing off these bumpy mirrors, and the mirrors are moving by 10 million, 100 million times smaller than those atoms. That was crazy. So I uh, was in the process of writing with my the former PhD advisor, John Wheeler at the time, and Charlie Misner, another former student of his, writing a textbook about uh, general relativity. And uh, I was writing a section on uh, ideas for detecting gravitational waves. And so I just mentioned Ray Weiss's idea. And I simply said, it's not very promising. I held back. I didn't say it was crazy. I didn't say he was had gone off the deep end. But I I was very blunt at that level. It's not very promising. After you studied Dr. Weiss's report in more depth, you came to consider it a blueprint for the future. And it took many decades of work. But on September 14th, 2015, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, began the first search for gravitational waves. 
And Ligo indeed, quit. let me just say, indeed, yeah. what after two or three years of studying his paper and talking with him and with several other colleagues, I became convinced that it had a reasonable shot at success. And so I wound up devoting a large fraction of my career to helping him succeed uh, after having uh, declared that this was not very promising. And, and as you remarked, by 2015, uh, we did have success. You spent a lot of your life, as you just said, working on this. What did you think the odds were of success? I didn't quote odds to anybody. I was vague in the following sense. It was quite clear when we first proposed to build LIGO, our gravity wave detector system of two detectors of this sort, it was clear that we would have to build very expensive facilities and then build a first generation of detectors and we would very probably not see anything. We by then would have spent several hundred million dollars of taxpayers' money. And then we would have learned enough from these instruments that we had built to be able to design and build advanced gravity wave detectors or advanced LIGO. What was the odds of success? This depended on two things. It depended on how kind nature was. And I had a fairly good idea of how kind, kind nature was, but we weren't by any means sure. It depended on how good the experimental team was. And by that time, I knew we had the best possible team that could that could be put together from the best physicists in the world. So my expectation uh, was certainly considerably better than 50-50 odds, that up 80-90% odds, that if we continued to be funded into uh, the second generation, the advanced detectors, and pushing the advanced detectors all the way up to their design sensitivity, uh, I would have said 90, I didn't quote a number, but I'd say 90, 95% odds that we would succeed at that level. But that level was very far from where we began, very far. And the whole issue is whether we could really get to that level. But I had confidence in this superb team that uh, had been put together. And once we had that team in place, I was feeling pretty optimistic. LIGO captured a strong signal from the collision of two black holes, 29 and 36 times more massive than our sun, and located 1.3 billion light years from planet Earth. Uh, the waves carried away as much energy as would be produced by annihilating three of our suns. After intense scrutiny of the results, the LIGO scientists announced this discovery to the world on February 11th, 2016. What are gravitational waves actually made of? They're made from a warping of space and time. They're not made from matter. They're not made from electricity or magnetism. They're made from a pure warping of space and time, the stretching of space, the squeezing of space, clockwise twisting of space, counterclockwise twisting of space. And it is really quite remarkable. This is the thing that so excited me as a young man when I came to understand the nature of Einstein's relativity theory, that you could have what I would call a warped side of the universe, objects and phenomena that are made from 
a deformation, a warping of space and of time. You've said that gravitational wave astronomy could someday allow direct observation of the earliest history of the universe. And I'm wondering how would we be able to observe that? So I expect that uh, it's likely that within the next decade, we will indirectly see the gravitational waves that came from the birth of the universe. Indirectly, in the following sense, that those waves with very, very long wavelengths, very slow oscillations, wavelengths one hundredth or a tenth the size of the observable universe, unbelievably long wavelengths, those waves stretched and squeezed the very hot matter in the early universe at the moment that it was emitting, it was producing electromagnetic waves that we now detect, called the cosmic microwave background. The plasma is being stretched and squeezed by the gravitational waves, and as the electromagnetic waves scatter off that plasma, they get an imprint from the gravitational waves that were stretching and squeezing it, and that imprint is what we call a polarization imprint, and that polarization imprint uh, has been seen by cosmologists. However, there are other ways that that polarization imprint can be made in the universe, and the challenge is to separate out the imprint that was produced by the primordial gravitational waves from imprint produced in other manners. And that's what the holy grail of this area of cosmology is today. But it's a holy grail that I think is they're going to pull it off uh, in the coming decade. A more direct observation of these primordial gravitational waves will likely be achieved in the middle of this century by gravitational wave detectors that are very similar to LIGO, but they're out in interplanetary space, uh, something called the Big Bang Observer, but the future gravitational wave space mission. And those will see gravitational waves that oscillate with periods from uh, about a second to a minute. Uh, whereas the ones that put the imprint on this cosmic microwave background, it's periods of 100 million years. And so I think that by the middle of this century, we're likely to be observing the primordial gravitational waves directly or indirectly in very two different frequency bands, as we say, or uh, oscillation period bands, period bands of uh, 100 million years versus period bands of tens of seconds. That will be so exciting because the gravitational waves that we're observing would be carrying direct information about the birth of the universe. And the birth of the universe is controlled by laws of quantum gravity that we don't understand. And the challenge then of unraveling the effects of the laws of quantum gravity and the details of birth of the universe from these gravitational waves will be an extremely exciting challenge. And uh, I think it's going to be it could be the biggest thing going on in science in the middle of this century. Do you think that we'll be able to learn what the conditions were that led to the Big Bang? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. There's a question of how much information will actually be there. I think through the combination of theory, by then we may have a much better understanding of the laws of quantum gravity. And if we do, then the focus will be on using the combined laws of quantum gravity and observations 
to try to get a handle on the conditions that led to the Big Bang. Leah, speaking of origins and and conditions, I understand that when you were six years old, you told your mom you wanted to have your hair cut like Han Solo. <laughs> this Did is she true. allow it? Did she allow it? Oh, absolutely. I think I was just <laughs> initially irritated that my name Leah was so close to Princess Leia that I was like, if there was any character in this movie, I would be absolutely be Han Solo. And uh, yes, my parents took me. I think the hair hairstylist was more confused that this mother was like, yeah, give her what she wants. And I got a flat top. How did it look? I mean, it matched my parachute pants that I was wearing and <laughs> rocking while I was like break dancing around the neighborhood. So, you know, I looked like a perfect 80s California surfer skater kid. Well, you were born in Chicago, but grew up in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Um, Your dad was a physicist, and you grew up in your father's lab at UC San Francisco. And I believe it was he who gave you your first telescope. Is that right? My dad, I don't know, actually, where I got my first telescope. My dad gave me my first skateboard when I was, um, I think, four four years old. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But I don't, I think my first, the first telescope that was actually mine, I think I got when I was in in college as an undergrad. Oh, so perhaps you were looking at his telescope in his labs. Yeah. What were you looking at back then? My father studied the realm of the small. He actually studied bones. And so one of the coolest things that he did when I was young is he just encouraged a general sense of creativity and exploration. And he would say to me when I was young, oh, Leah, I'm really overwhelmed in my lab. Would you come and help me out? Do you think you would be okay getting out of kindergarten? And, you know, I thought this was a really important job that he needed help with. And he would have, he would like set me up washing test tubes and just explain everything to me. You know, he was doing all sorts of experiments um, in the 80s that were looking at how bones um were affected when we went into space. So it was very cool. I got to see the space shuttle land at Edwards Air Force Base, and I got to go to a shuttle launch, the Columbia shuttle launch in Florida. But my father was just like captivated with the world, right? Whether it was studying bones, he would he would stop a diesel truck driver broken down on the side of the road. Oh, what's like what's happening with your engine? What's going on? And he just instilled this absolute passion for curiosity in me. He also, as you mentioned, gave you your first skateboard. Um, but you've stated that you were not invited into the culture of skateboarding in the Bay Area, and that you didn't actually meet a female skateboarder who could really skate until you were in your 20s. Why weren't you invited in when you first started? I think skateboarding culture, it's almost hard for us to imagine what it was like in the 80s and 90s. Um, You know, skateboarding was a subculture. We didn't have Tony Hawk Pro Skater. There was no X Games. So it was a subculture. And if you imagine that women were really kind of the sub-subculture and there were skater girlfriends hanging out at the skate park, but no one who was actually skateboarding. I think when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, and I was really, you know, skateboarding ramps all the time, I was also really starting to become aware that I was queer. And I felt this very much like an outsider, even within this like subculture. 
the way that I would describe it is almost like a circus monkey. Like I'd show up at a skate park and for me to be invited in there, these are not skate parks that are sponsored by the city. These are, you know, guys getting concrete and mixing it on the weekend and, you know, transforming spaces that you'd get kicked out of, chased by police. It was really a kind of do-it-yourself vibe that I absolutely loved. And I find that is very much akin and in parallel to being an artist. But it was very much like I had to prove myself to be able, you know, they'd say, do a kickflip. Oh, jump over this thing. And then if I did it, then they'd be like, okay, you're cool. You can, you know, kind of hang and stay in here. But yeah, the first time I met a female skateboarder, I was probably in my mid to early 20s. You ended up having a half pipe in your backyard. Did you build it yourself? (laughs) Yeah, my dad and I built several ramps. I will say my dad is not just a scientist. He's an incredible surfer. He's just has a passion and love of the ocean. I grew up just south of San Francisco in a small surfing community. And my dad just always had me on a board. So, you know, just like the haircut, I said, oh, I want to build some ramps. My dad was like, how big? How many? What do you know? What shape? We built all sorts of weird stuff in my backyard. But I, I think since I was probably about nine to when I went to college, I had some kind of a skateboard ramp in my backyard that I spent most of my time on. You were featured in Thrasher magazine when you were 15 as part of a new wave of young skateboarders. Um, I happened to find a, a copy of it online, by the way. <laughs> That's I, I can send you the picture research. of you. They they misspelled your name. They spelled it L E A, not L I A. But yeah. I I could pick you out of the out of the people. Um, but since your friends had never heard of Thrasher, you still felt like the odd person out. Um, looking back on that now, you've said that you gained a power from that. Um, what kind of power? Well, you know, when they first contacted me, they said they were going to do an all-female issue of Thrasher, which I was so excited about. And um, I was photographed at the time. The kind of top spots in San Francisco was Embarcadero, was photographed in the Thrasher Venture ramps on the big half pipes. And then the article, I was actually photographed when I was 14 years old, and it almost was like an entire year before it came out. And I just kind of never heard anything. And then then I got um, the information that, well, there just weren't enough women that were, or girls that were good enough to be in Thrasher. So I ended up in this article called 50 Unknowns Soon to Go Pro. And I thought, well, that can't be right because I'm a girl, no one is going to turn me into a pro skateboarder. You know, I kind of laughed at it, even, you know, even at 15 years old, realizing how futile that even that title was. But it did give me this sense, it was on one hand, like, oh, wow, I'm so good. I'm, you know, being told that there's not enough women to make a whole article. But it was also just kind of like in the same way, heartbreaking, um, that there was no community there. So it was a little bit alienating. But um You know, skateboarding for me is very similar to maybe the way that people talk about more akin to surfing because I didn't feel invited into that community. What I did fall in love with was the creativity of my body moving on the ramps and ditches and, you know, just moving through that urban space. And much of me being a young skateboarder, I was skateboarding by myself. Whereas when you think of skateboarding, you almost immediately think of that second word, skateboarding culture. 
right? It's like this group. And it took me until I was in my mid-20s to kind of find and form that group in a all-girl skate crew that we called ourselves Rib Death. Very serious. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really cool. There's some some fun videos I found online. Um do you still skateboard? I skateboard with my daughter nearly um, every couple times a week. I skate her to school and I have two kids, a two and a five-year-old, and they're really into the scooters, but um, I haven't gotten them completely addicted to the skateboard yet. But uh, little Atlas at two years old, I think he's my best promise. He's really, he'll like stand on it and pull it out. So I think I have a second wind in me of uh, being a skateboarder by kind of translating that love to my kids. But yeah, Jas and I skate to school a couple times a week. When you were 15 years old, you asked your parents if you could have your birthday party at an exploratorium. Why did you want to have it there? <laughs> These are great questions, Debbie. <laughs> so when I was 15, I um, had gone on a field trip, I think the year before, to this hands-on physics museum in San Francisco. And there's 9,000 exhibits at the Exploratorium. There, It was at the Palace of Fine Arts, just a beautiful place. And um they have something there called the tactile dome where you, it was completely, completely dark. You, you, it's not a maze. You can't get lost, but you are led through these tunnels and everything is, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Um, and you try to move through this space. And when I was there on a field trip, they were saying, oh, you could rent out the tactile dome. And so I think the year later, I told my parents, like, that's what I want to do is go to the tactile dome. You ended up getting your first job there as well, initially conducting cow eye dissections and laser demonstrations, and then in the machine shop where you learned how to build and use a sandblaster and a lathe. Um, at that time, did you think you wanted to be a scientist? You, you know, I knew... I would say even from my early um, Han Solo six-year-old days that I wanted to be an artist, but I was really passionate about learning how to build things. And I think for me, the idea of science was always intrinsically tied to what being an artist and making could be. So even though I was like my first job working in a science museum, all everything that I did there, I just thought that that was somehow like supporting me being an artist in some way. It was like a, a vehicle to study the thing that I was going to make work about. So, um, you know, working in the machine shop, I, um, I apprenticed under a really amazing builder, Tom Tompkins. And I felt like that was truly the foundation for me to go to art school. I learned how to build everything, the lathe, the end mill, like you said, the sandblaster. Every weekend, Tom would throw some weird thing at me and say, you know, I need a hundred of these knobs and they have to be to a hundredth of an inch. And just gave me such a dedication and passion for precision, for refining your craft, for really understanding how things work. And, you know, if you didn't, if you, if you kind of didn't understand it, you know, we would absolutely just take the thing apart. And so it was amazing way to, you know, building a museum exhibit, you're building something to try to share something with someone that has never, you know, never existed before. Very similar to art making. 
You got your BA from UCLA and went on to get an MFA in painting and printmaking from Yale University. Uh, Micheline Thomas and Kehinda Wiley were two of your classmates. Uh, Paul McCarthy was one of your favorite professors uh, at UCLA. And you said that one of the favorite things he told you was that after he makes something, it could take upwards of six months to really understand what he did. How did that influence you? I mean, that was a really profound thing to hear when you're in school from someone that you just admire so much, right? In school, you're the structure of a semester. You're supposed to come up with an idea and follow it and execute it and defend it in a critique. And to have someone that was so ingrained in making and would let their studio practice lead them through that making to what the content was, that was just so freeing to me. It just gave me like a big open space to be extremely exploratory. That's one of my favorite things that anyone said to me as an undergrad. I I pass that on to my students and I think about it all the time. When I'm lost in my studio, I don't know what I'm doing. I actually find great comfort in the unknown at this point because of that. To think like, you know, you have plenty of time to figure out what it is. And through the act of physically um, being creative, your body and your intuitive marks will tell you something about the thing that you're doing more so than thinking about it can. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I love art. I love looking at art, collecting art, and showing it off in my home. And FrameBridge helps me affordably custom frame all my art. FrameBridge has a curated selection of frame styles and design experts to make it fun and easy to choose the perfect frame for every piece. Their pricing is fair and transparent and is based upon the size of your piece so you know exactly what you'll pay up front. Ordering online is simple and convenient. You can choose to upload a digital photo for them to print and frame, or you can mail your piece with a secure prepaid packaging provided by FrameBridge. And if you prefer to buy your frames in person, you can. FrameBridge has stores in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Chicago, and Atlanta. Visit a store and you can get one-on-one expert design advice and see their collection of frame styles in person. Visit FrameBridge.com or a retail store to custom frame just about anything. I want to talk a bit about some of your early projects before we talk about your collaboration with Kip. In 2009, you began working on a performance-based photographic series called Dark Skate, using long exposure photography to document the trajectories of your movements on a skateboard 
at night. The series consists of site-specific, two-dimensional images that are part photograph, part performance, and part self-portrait drawings. Dark State has been described as an exploration of relationships generated between the body and space, expressing the universal and intimate qualities of each. What inspired this piece? Well, I think as an artist, I kind of do things without thinking just that I'm drawn to and I want to explore. And then they turn out to then be ingrained in my art practice. So I don't think that I ever set out to make a project that was about skateboarding, but because skateboarding is such a huge part of my history, I was really interested in answering the question, how could I make work that embodied the way that I could express myself physically through space. And to me, one of the spaces that I'm the most free and exploratory is through skateboarding. And I loved that I would be actually setting a project that kind of um, documented my physical limitations of what I could do. So in this series, I attach a light to my body and I'm skateboarding bowls in the pitch dark. Well, a lot of people think, oh, that's you know, kind of outrageous, or it's such an extreme idea, but it's actually not. It's muscle memory. I mean, I have just, you know, like we talked about my childhood, I've spent so much of my life on a skateboard on a ramp, that it actually is really very much like a self portrait. And in so much of my work, it's really important to have an intimate connection to whatever I'm making my subject matter and to put myself in it. So even though I, you don't see a photograph of me, I also think that people in a lot of ways are surprised that there is a female skateboarder, a queer body that is a skateboarder. I, you know, fly planes. People are surprised that there would be a female skateboarder. All those things, it's like, it's very subtle, but it's really important as an artist to, you know, to represent those, you know, those spaces. And so um, Dark Skate is, is really so much, it's like a, I think of them as double portraits. It's the portrait of the city, the urban space, the explorer, myself, uh, the, the self-portrait of me, um, you know, within those spaces. They're absolutely haunting and, and quite beautiful. Um, you were in a show with Guggenheim called Haunted mm-hmm. Contemporary Photography Video Performance, and the curators placed your work in the section of performance Did that surprise you? I loved that. I mean, I felt that I always tried to tell everyone in this these pieces that I'm not really the photographer. The photography is the necessary intersection to document those movements. So I just thought it was absolutely perfect because when I'm moving in that space, I am being very inventive and you're just, you know, you capture this kind of glimmer in, mo- in a moment. The photograph kind of flattens it out, but it's so akin to um, making, uh, you know, a mark, a line, a gesture, you know, you can find reference in drawing and also just, you know, the body moving through space. One of the most influential things in conceptually thinking about this space is every time I would go surfing with my dad, which was every Saturday when I was growing up in Pacifica, I would be like eagerly trying to get into the ocean and he'd say, hang on, hang on, let's take a look. And he'd always want to watch the ocean. I was so impatient. And he'd say, where are you going? What wave are you going on? Are you going left? Are you going right? Where are you paddling out? 
And he, from that age, I always imagined, I think I started projecting this like line coming out of my chest that I would look and and find my way on the wave. So then before getting to the ocean, I'd say, okay, we're going to paddle through that channel and we're going to go, we're going to sit on the crest of that wave and we're going to, you know, take the wave to the right. And that to me was also like so much of what dark skate was, was like inserting my own personal kind of like intimate way of reinterpreting the urban space around me. Leah, you said that not only is your work about science or drawing from science, but the process itself always has an experimental quality. And I understand you'd never made a cyanotype before you began the series. Your body is a space that sees. And it took you six months to master the process. Was that process enjoyable? Is that experimental phase one that you find fulfilling, even if you don't have an outcome that you can foresee? I think it's actually the most exciting because it's it's like it can be anything you're you're de- you're determining what the thing can be through the experiment so making a you know cyanotype to take 6 months it kind of it sounds like a lot but we're you know uh me and my studio team really trying to figure out <clears throat> how to make these things on a really large scale kip what about you do you find the process of going through the unknown, something that is enjoyable or is it, does it produce anxiety and tension because you don't know what the outcome is? And, you know, in your case, spending decades on something where you don't know if you're going to get a result. How do you manage that? How do you calibrate that experience into your psyche? As Ray Weiss, my MIT soulmate, says, it was such great fun that uh, we (laughs) didn't uh, ever get discouraged. Uh, The whole process uh, is exciting. It's uh, more enjoyable in many ways than, than the discovery itself. That's sort of how it feels like making art, you you know, being in the studio, creating, discovering something. It has the potential for kind of anythingness, especially when I don't know what the medium will where it will take me when it's done. Then it goes, you know, it goes off. It goes to a gallery. It has another life. And then you're just I feel like then I transform back into a viewer and I stop becoming the maker. But I kind of ended up getting into everything that I do because I love the making. I love the, you know, sitting in that unknown and and the opportunity to find something new that could surprise or shock me in my own studio. How, like, wonderful could that be to then show someone, um, show someone what that could become? You two met at a cocktail party in Pasadena in 2007. Leah, is it true that you overheard someone say Kip's name and you went up to him <laughs> and effusively and unapologetically shared how much of an impact his <laughs> writing had had on your artwork? Absolutely. And so much so that the woman he was talking to under her breath, but loud enough for me to hear uttered physics groupie <laughs> to me. <laughs> 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 Kip, did that scare you at all? <laughs> no. How do you no. manage the visit groupies? <laughs> uh, it it just goes with the territory, unfortunately. They so what what has been difficult for me was you. I win the Nobel Prize. I become an icon. 
which is what they want. The Nobel uh, Committee wants icons for science. I don't. I'm uncomfortable being an icon. I don't want to be an icon, but I am, and I've just gotten used to it. And uh, and so I more or less try to ignore it and uh, try to just be Kip. Kip, as Leah told you what she did, you realized that a filmmaker who was interested in making a movie that engaged some of your science needed someone who could help make drawings and paintings of black holes and wormholes to help convey the ideas. And the film ended up being the 2014 film Interstellar. And while the original director was Steven Spielberg, you ended up working with the director Christopher Nolan. But it was Spielberg you had to convince to not use a spaceship that could travel faster than the speed of light. Is that correct? No, no, no that one was uh, was Christopher Nolan. Oh, it was Christopher Nolan? Yes, yes. Oh, I'm disappointed in Christopher Nolan. I thought that <laughs> no. he was oh, no. smarter than that. <laughs> you know, oh, in reality, he's, his whole attitude was one of pushing the envelope. Mm. And he had discovered in his conversation with me very early that I could make pronouncements and I could turn out to be wrong. Uh, ah. it, that, that's one of the, my PhD advisor, John Wheeler, used to say, uh, the greatest physicists are the ones who make the most mistakes the most rapidly on their way to the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, I could frequently be wrong. And Chris would say to me, I would like such and so, for example, he said, I would I would like one uh, hour on Miller's planet in the movie, The Water Planet, is seven years back on Earth. And I said to him immediately, that's not possible. And he said to me, you go do a real calculation. By then he, he knew the, the foundation is to do a real calculation of the real laws of physics and not just guess. And so I went off and did a real calculation. And sure enough, uh, he was right. I was wrong. Uh, this was possible. It was very extreme, but it was possible. And so uh, he had this experience of uh, me making pronouncements. And then when he pushes me to the wall, I go check for absolutely sure. And I'm shocked to find I was wrong. So when he said uh, uh, that he wanted to go back to Earth faster than the speed of light, I told him, absolutely, that's not possible. Uh, that time I uh, I was right. You I prevailed. Right. <laughs> I prevailed. But, but the interchange with Christopher Nolan was an enormous pleasure. Uh, we uh, worked together productively with a give and take. It was very similar to my interactions with Leah. I've had two wonderful collaborators in, in Chris and in Leah. Interstellar is one of, if not my favorite movie of all time, um, well, maybe that and and Arrival and Contact, and you also consulted on Contact with Carl Sagan. Leah, I understand that you created over 250 paintings based on Kip's scientific writings. Did that mean you had to fully understand them? Huh, that's a good question. Is there a test in the end here, Kip? No, no, no. I'm just really curious. Um, well, I think that uh, for the book, we've actually, there's 100 and probably 150 paintings that appear in the book. And we've counted up now to about 668 is last week's count. The reason that they keep going is I keep, we're going through all the old archive because over 13 years I've made all, you know, so many different iterations. And I think that through drawing and through painting, I would get closer to understanding what Kip was talking about. So 
some of the things like black holes and wormholes, I already had peripheral information and knowledge and you had taken many classes on these things and just a totally separate interest before meeting Kip, which is why I was so excited to meet him. Um, but through our conversations, Kip would just explain it a little bit different, just a, a different like a different entry point. And I'd make a painting and in a weird way, the way that even Paul McCarthy was talking about, I would sort of learn something by even me making the painting. Then Kip would look at it and nudge it in a different direction, say, well, why doesn't it go a little bit more like this? Or the tendexes should be spinning a little bit more like this. And so I think through our conversations and through the visualizations, those things would bring me to understanding the topics within our book even more so than reading. Kip, you've said that you could see the spirit of science captured in Leah's drawings in a way that people who are not physicists could get some real sense of of what they were. Do you think that ideas are expressed? Do you think that ideas expressed visually are easier to comprehend than verbally? Different people's minds work differently. For me, visualization of ideas is very powerful. My mind operates visually. When I'm doing research, mathematics is the language of science. Mathematics is the ultimate arbiter that uh, tells me what the laws of physics are predicting. But the visualization is the thing that enables me to make leaps of insight and with those leaps of insight decide what mathematical calculations to do in order to verify whether or not my leaps of insight are correct. So when I'm thinking about physics, I'm almost always thinking in terms of visualizations and not in terms of the mathematics. It's only when I'm trying to do, get things nailed down for sure that I turn to the mathematics. Uh, and so going from my thinking of physics to communicating with Leah or uh, more generally with the non-scientist public, the visualizations are the natural tool. They just uh, carry right over uh, from my research right into the conversation. You're about to publish a new book together, a book that has been nearly two decades in the making. It is titled The Warped Side of the Universe, an Odyssey Through Black Holes, Wormholes, Time Travel, and Gravitational Waves. Now, is it true that this book began with an article you were asked to write and illustrate for Playboy magazine? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Tell, it, tell us more about that. Is that a natural way for a book to begin? Absolutely. Yeah, between that and Penthouse, we're getting this all covered. <laughs> Listen, we have Thrasher in there, too. You see a theme. That's true. That's true. There is a theme. I love it. I love well, it. This was the era when Playboy was trying to distinguish itself from other men's magazines by having what they regarded as high-quality interviews, high-quality literature. And so the... Uh, editor that I had had on a previous book I'd written called Black Holes and Time Warps had become literary editor at Playboy magazine. And she contacted me and asked if I would write an article about warped space time for Playboy. And I said, yes, but I would like to bring on Leah to do paintings as part of the article. She and the art director at Playboy looked at some of Leah's uh, paintings on the web and came back great, very enthusiastic and so we got a contract with Playboy magazine to do this. We moved forward and we submitted then an article that I'd forgotten. It was maybe three or 4,000 words long. 
and had uh, four or five of Leah's uh, paintings in it. And uh, fairly quickly, we got a response. Leah, you want to describe the response? Well, I was personally rejected by Hugh Hefner, which I wear as a badge of honor. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Now, he rejected the paintings. Why? Well, they weren't up to Playboy's standards, he said. I don't think that I had properly objectified these women (laughs) is essentially what it came down to. Um, yeah, that is definitely a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah, and I and I thought I was like being subversive because uh, for the models, I had used different queer and trans women, and I was like, this is the first time they're going to be in Playboy magazine, and no one will know. <laughs> then, um, yeah, Hugh, <sighs> Hugh Hefner um, said that um, you know my paintings did not live up to the Playboy standards, and you also featured your wife as one of the models, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very, very beautiful woman. So mm, his mistake. Um, <laughs> well, well, the good news is for Kip is that all of those original paintings that were supposed to be in Playboy existed. And when it trans when we transformed them into a book, Kip got all the originals. So he has <laughs> the he has one hanging behind him right now. Yes. Here, here in my office. A beautiful painting of Leah's wife. Yes. Well, since this is a podcast, we we can't see it, but maybe we can post it when the show goes live. Um, And people can't see the book, so I want to actually describe it a little bit. Um, It was designed by the legendary artist and designer Rebecca Mendez. It has 240 luscious coffee table-sized pages, a stunning jacket. It includes more than 100 magnificent four-color paintings by Leah throughout. It has multiple gatefolds. And the text is an epic prose poem written by Kip. What made you both decide to make this book like this book? (laughs) I mean... The way this book came to be is such a good uh, like force for collaboration because I don't think that we ever set out to make what you just described. What we did set out to was to have these conversations and to continue with what we started in making for Playboy. And we called it our little book for years. We thought, oh, it'll be 30, 40 pages because what happened was every time Kip and I would get together, We'd have these wonderful conversations. Then I would make more paintings and Kip would look at the paintings and he'd make, he'd extend the writing. And then I'd look at the writing and then I'd make more paintings and it would go back and forth and back and forth. But I would say we never intended to make what it looks like now. It's almost like the book made itself or the collaboration and our friendship and our love for each other of of just sort of making the book that we would want to read based on black holes and wormholes and time travel. It told us what it needed to be. And I never intended that it would be uh, poetry or verse. Uh, it was prose originally, but I had always, in all of my writing, even very technical writing, worked hard to polish the prose so that it was really understandable, so it flowed beautifully, and so it was a pleasure to read. That's what I had done with his Playboy prose. And early on, after we decided we'd make it into a little book, Leah had a friend lay it out as a book, and that friend happened to break up on uh, two pages, two facing pages happened to break my prose into stanzas. It was a particular piece that naturally got broken into stanzas. But I looked at that, and I had an epiphany. I realized that because I had worked so hard 
to polish the prose so that it flowed beautifully, it could be turned into verse. And as I experimented with turning it into verse, I then came to realize that this combination of tightly integrated verse and paintings could convey the essence of the science that I was talking about, the warped space and time, black holes, wormholes, the Big Bang, could convey gravitational waves, could convey the essence of that uh, much more powerfully than the standard kind of writing I had always done for the uh, non-scientists of prose together with illustrations. This is very different. The verse is simultaneously more constraining and more liberating, more liberating in the sense of opening myself up to focusing on the essence of what is going on, the beauty and the essence of it, instead of focusing on getting all the fine details right. And I think this was an epiphany for me, but it's really an epiphany probably for Leah and me together uh, as we jointly came to understand the power of uh, this combination. Yeah, I think it was also a moment for me to realize that we could make something that would possibly embody and really offer a wide invitation to these things that people are very curious and passionate about, but feel maybe intimidated by, you know, didactic writing and mathematics that could we have an entry point could we make something that wasn't just the science or the art, but it was like this third thing where the text and the paintings really, they supported each other. Like you need one to have the other. Mm. Did you get the manuscript first, Leah, and then make the paintings or were you collaborating back and forth sort of volleying? Yeah, that's how it was made. So it was made in a very untraditional way. Kip didn't have something that I then, quote, illustrated. That's why we, you know, I really think of them as paintings, not illustrations. A lot of times I would make a painting and I'd show to Kip and Kip would look at it and then he would write based on looking at the painting and then mm. he'd send me things and then I would pick out what to me. He would never say like, make a painting about this. He would send me different passages and then I would say, okay, if I want to understand what was the essence and the ethos of what he's, what we're trying to like communicate here and maybe it's one painting and sometimes I'd say, okay, this short passage, we need five paintings here because that's to me what could create what we came to describe, um, which was like, we want a book that transfers someone into a, a total experience, an experience of the universe. Yeah, um, I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about how we got here, what we're made of, etc. And I was a little bit intimidated by the book because I'm limited only by what I don't know when it comes to thinking about these things. And that's a lot. So I actually decided I was going to read the glossary first. I went through the book and I saw there was a glossary. And I'm like, let me read the glossary so I could really get a sense of these terms and then read it with a little feeling like I had a little bit more sort of of a foundation. And I actually found that you don't need to do that. <laughs> you don't need to do that. No. It's so beautifully, understandably rich mm-hmm. that it's nice to have the glossary because I think it's a way to go back and say, oh, I know what a gravitational wave is. Now it's this. Um, or I know what the bulk is. It's this. Um, but to have it, this this sort of, it's almost, it's almost like a piece of music 
that you're yeah. going through. And and the prose and the art are so intertwined. Yeah. It's it's really quite a marvelous journey to go through the book. Yeah. Um Leah, you, you say that your collaboration presents one aspect of art and science. And I'm wondering if you can describe that aspect. Well, the collaboration for the book, it just gave me an opportunity to make something that I would never make in and of myself in my studio. I exist in this strange art world where, you know, a studio artist, like I make things often alone in my studio, sometimes on large scale works, I have an amazing studio team. And then those things, where do they go? They go to galleries or museums. And oftentimes, I don't see them again, or there's a show, it gets put up, we celebrate it, and then they kind of go away. This collaboration on a large scale, I'm really interested in accessibility and art. That's, you know, I'm a professor and chair of the art department at Chapman University. I think of teaching as a complete extension of my studio practice. It's not just like something that I do, but often when I'm thinking of an idea and it, and I'm in that period that, uh, that we've talked about before with Paul McCarthy of like figuring out what it is. Often I'll write a course that I then share with my students. So I think of collaboration with my students, with KIPP. I've had other collaborations in the past that have just been so fruitful in getting me to understand the thing that I'm curious about. And the way that I sort of envision it, and because I am so visual, I often have these sort of mind exercises, is like, if I'm thinking about a black hole, I would like imagine that I'm putting that thing sort of in the middle of the room, and then I circle it from all different aspects. So maybe one of those might be making a drawing about it. Another thing is reading one type of writing about it. Number Another way would be looking at how did someone else depict it? You know, just really engaging and enmeshing myself in a community of other thinkers. So I think of collaboration as being absolutely integral in my studio practice, not only for the concepts and the development of a subject matter, but actually for the technical exploration. You had, you know, asked me how I've ever made a cyanotype before, but I, I made another piece in the last couple of years called Double Horizon, where I took mm. several cameras and I attached them to the um, external parts of a Cessna plane while I was learning how to fly. And, and that came from, I just thought to myself, how could I represent time and a like time-based piece that also engaged what a landscape could be. And then I thought, well, of course it has to be time-based, but I had no idea what that was. So I was basically flying around recording flights for two years, but that took an exceptional amount of collaboration because I'm not a videographer. I'm not an editor. I'm not a sound person. You know, I got to, you know, and, and honestly, it just, these collaborations, it has been so, um, it has just been so rewarding in my life because it gets me to meet and work with so many incredible people, you know. I mean, as we talk about the book coming up for its release, I mean, Kip and I, you know, talk on the phone and, and Zoom and see each other, you know, on a weekly basis for how many years. And I'm like, we've got to get another project going because <laughs> it's been just so amazing to, you know, the reason we wanted to make this was just so we could work together. Well, Double Horizon is is stunning. It actually 
when I was looking at the photographs, it reminded me a little bit of the planet that Murph lives on at the no. end of Interstellar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How sort of time is bending on top of itself. Yeah. Kip, I want to ask if, if you'll read a short excerpt from the book so people can get a sense of the prose. But before that, I just wanted to ask you one question. Early in the book, you state this. For decades, I a beast materially composed, have been consumed by quests to fully comprehend this warped side of our universe. How, through tricks of mathematics and computer simulations, probing Albert Einstein's relativity equation. So my question is, how do you come up with the tricks of mathematics to better understand parts of the universe we didn't even know existed? Mathematics is the language of the universe. Mathematics is the language of the physical laws that control the universe. We have two ways to really explore with confidence the universe. If we have confidence in our physical laws, then it's a matter of working with those mathematical laws. And mathematical tricks are a major part of working with those laws to figure out what the predictions are for what may be going on out there. And then going out and doing observations, such as our observations with LIGO, with gravitational waves. Those are the essential final tools for firm understanding, the manipulation of the mathematical laws and the observations. We've been talking about the visualization in paintings or mental visualization. Those are the essence of the intuition that enables us to make uh, great leaps of understanding. The mathematics is really very central to the deep understanding. Will you be willing to read us sure. a little excerpt sure. from, from the book? Sure. Tell us what you're going to read. So I'm going to read the beginning of the prologue that basically explains what the book is all about. It uh, introduces the warped side of the universe, which is what appears in the title of the book. And uh, the challenge, the excitement of our first contact as human beings with the warp side of the universe. Wonderful. Our universe is varied and vast. Galaxies, planets, stars and moons, quasars, pulsars and magnetars, all made from atoms and molecules, just like you and me, and all that we hear and touch and see. Our universe is also endowed with a marvelous shadowy side that is warped, Phenomena forged from warped space-time. Witness the ravenous fat black hole that Leah here depicts ingesting her wife, Felicia. I'm going to stop reading and just make a comment. The verse by itself is pretty dry. It is pretty oh, sparse. Oh, Kip, no, no. Uh, and without <laughs> no. the painting, mm -mm. it's pretty sparse. And so you have to understand no. that to really experience this you need the painting side by side with the painting here of leah's wife felicia being ingested by a black hole is so powerful as it ties so tightly into the verse i disagree <laughs> I, I mean i think it's that yes the experience of the book as one unit is wonderful but the prose is is really beautiful okay well i'll, I'll move on okay although this warped side is entwined in the weft of our matter-filled universe its stars, its planets and nebulae, its galaxies and its comets. We humans never saw it until just recently. Why did we never see? Warped space-time cannot produce light or other signals. 
that yesterday's technology was able to perceive. So now, how has that changed? A very long time ago, a billion years in the past, while here on Earth, multicelled life arose and spread around the globe, but in a galaxy far, far away, two spinning black holes danced around one another, rippling the fabric of space and time. The ripples, we call them gravity waves, sucked energy from the hole's orbit, so the holes spiraled inward, eclipsing each other toward a climactic collision. The holes at half of light speed catastrophically collided and merged in a brief cataclysmic storm of writhing and twisting space-time that brought the waves to crescendo. The climaxing gravity waves from this catastrophic collision surged out of their birthing galaxy and into interstellar space. Spreading across our universe for nearly a billion years, they stretched and they squeezed all that they met, stars and planets and nebulae, in patterns that encoded a portrait of their birth, colliding holes and space-time storm. Then, 50,000 years ago, when humans shared Earth with Neanderthals, the spreading and weakening gravity waves sailed into our spiral-armed Milky Way, our galaxy, our home. On September 14th of 2015, near the Antarctic Peninsular tip, the waves flying upward plunged into the Earth through air, then rush oceans, then rock, whispering up through Earth's bowels unscathed and emerging just north of New Orleans. The gravity waves came face to face with a complex and huge L-shaped invention designed and built to perceive them. LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravity Wave Observatory. Flowing through LIGO, the gravity waves stretched and then squeezed microscopically two very long beams of bouncing light that extracted the portraits the waves had encoded, colliding holes and space-time storm. This tiny shudder in LIGO was momentous for the whole human race, our very first moment of contact with the warped side of our universe. Thank you. I have three last questions for you both today. First one is for Leah. Leah, do you have any plans to have an exhibition to show off the full-size paintings that are featured in the book? Yes, I have a solo show opening on November 4th with my gallery here in LA, Luis de Jesus, and we will be showing um, a collection of the original art from the book. And then I've made a larger piece that celebrates each of the chapters as an expansion of the, the book itself. And then we're also, um, we've made a print so that um, we, we kind of wanted to make something that was like a spe- an extension of a special edition of the book. So a print will also be available for the first two weeks that the book comes out to celebrate its release. And you can find all that on um, uh, the information for the exhibition in Los Angeles on my website at Luis de Jesus Los Angeles. Um, and the print information is on those sites as well. Wonderful. Kit, my next question is for you. Um, You know that I went to high school with David Spurgel, the MacArthur Fellow, former professor of astronomy at Princeton University and currently the president of the Simons Foundation. And I told him that I was interviewing you today and I asked him if he had any burning questions for you. And this is what he responded with. Question from David Spurgel. 
Among the many fascinating things that Kip has thought about, one of my favorite topics and one that will likely be of interest to your listeners is closed timeline curves, the possibility that we could travel back in time. Kip has thought deeply about how closed timeline curves change the structure of reality. Self-consistency requires that you don't kill your grandmother before you were born, but like in Back to the Future, you could help your father meet your mother. David's question is this. I have wondered whether closed timeline curves are stable to quantum fluctuations. Could the photon travel back in time and then circle around endlessly back and forth in time, getting brighter and brighter? I think that David... uh... Uh, it was feeding that to me to get me to respond the following way. He, he knows a lot about my thinking on this. This process that uh, if you had a time machine and it, you first turn it on, then a photon could be the first thing to travel through it, could go through the time machine and come back, arriving back at the very same place as it started, at the same moment as it started, and now you have two photons there at the same point in space and time. You have the original one and you have the older one uh, that's made the trip. And then those two can go around and come back to where they started. Now you have four. And so what began as one photon can wind up as being an enormous number of photons. In fact, that could build up so explosively it might destroy the time machine at the moment that it gets turned on. And this was a question raised for for me by two colleagues at the University of Chicago when I was thinking about time machines and closed timeline curves. And it triggered me to say, to ask the question in a little more sophisticated way. I can save the time machine by just simply blocking the photon so it can't go through. Uh, and so then I'll still have a time machine. But... Uh, there's something I can't block, and that is fluctuations of what we call virtual photons, quantum fluctuations of light. These quantum fluctuations of light are unstoppable and they're unremovable. And so I sat down with a postdoc some years ago and did the same analysis and discovered that these quantum fluctuations going through uh, this incipient time machine, what was just first being turned on, do create a gigantic explosion. Stephen Hawking and this student of his did a similar calculation about the same time. And uh, we then got into a big argument between ourselves. It appeared to me that the explosion would be strong enough to destroy the time machine. It appeared to him that it uh, might not be. And uh, as we went back and forth, we came to realize that the answer as to whether it's strong enough that all time machines will always be destroyed when you first turn them on, uh, whether that's the case or not, uh, it was held tightly in the grip of these poorly understood laws of quantum gravity. So there we are. We We don't understand the laws of quantum gravity well enough to be sure whether time machines always self destruct when you turn them on. There's a whole chapter about this in in our book. And Leah even yes. invented, she invented a very simple version of this uh, that you have to read in the last that part of that chapter, uh, a variant that is much easier to understand what I, than what I just said. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's a wonderful part of the collaboration was the elaboration that Absolutely. Leah did of this. 
Didn't Stephen Hawking have a party for future physicists to come back in time? <laughs> and had food and drink and yes. no one showed and up. no one so. showed up. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, since we're speaking speculatively, I have one last question for both of you. What do you think the chances are of there being extraterrestrial life in the universe? As a artist who is so influenced by reading about science and hearing about it from all aspects. I think that because I'm not a scientist, I get very excited hearing from different ways that we're creatively thinking about what people are doing at JPL and what they're sampling and what they're doing. Um, And I think that it seems very unlikely that there is not life out there. Um, And, uh, you know, there's probably much more well said by uh, Carl Sagan that, um, you know, what a lonely place it would be if there wasn't. But um, Big waste of space. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, in the same way that Kip is looking at what the next generation of LIGO can can be, I feel like what an exciting time to bear witness that I think within our lifetimes, we're going to be able to see what those life forms are. I'm really excited to see what the mission to Europa being built by um, JPL is going to show. Yes, it's going to be tiny, little, unexciting, um, you know, microcosms of life, but um, and not a multi-celled body. But I, I vote yes, enthusiastically. Kev, what about you? Well, let me describe a gathering that I had uh, when we were just working on the movie Interstellar when Steven Spielberg was the uh, director in the early creative phase. Uh, It was at Caltech. We brought together, I think, 18 scientists from around uh, the United States who were experts in various aspects of the science that was going to be in the movie. And Steven himself he posed toward the end of our discussion, it was an all-day discussion, he posed the question, how many of you think that it is very likely that there are uh, civilizations out there, that advanced civilizations out in the universe besides our own? And every hand went up. All 18 scientists said they thought it was very likely. And I, I was surprised at that. I wasn't surprised that it was a majority, but I was a little surprised that it was everybody people who are experts on astrobiology, experts in quantum physics, experts in rocketry. Um, But everybody, including me, thought it quite likely. Kip Thorne, Leah Halloran, thank you so much for making so much work that matters, for helping us comprehend the magic and the science of the warp side of the universe. And thank you, thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Kip Thorne and Leah Halloran's new book is titled The Warp Side of the Universe, an odyssey through black holes, wormholes, time travel, and gravitational waves. You can read more about Leah Halloran at leahhalloran.com and more about Kip at nobelprize.org. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. 
The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.